Join me in welcoming Dr. Abby Van Voorhees. We're going to, uh, uh, throughout the course of this meeting, you're going to be hearing about psoriasis in several different times, several different places. So let me kind of orient you about what my little piece of the pie is so that we can kind of set the stage. I'm going to be talking to you this afternoon about um, issues that are unique to women. One of the things that struck me as I've um, taken care of patients who have psoriasis over the years is that this is a lifelong disease, and that makes it unique than most any other. You know, eczema, for example, mostly we see it in children, and then most, most people outgrow it as they get older, although obviously not everyone. Skin cancers, blistering diseases, mostly we see those in people who are older, although certainly sometimes those ages are creeping downward too. But psoriasis is one of those few conditions that for many starts in childhood and remains with you lifelong. So we're going to be taking a journey, kind of looking through the lens of women um, and what issues might be unique uh, to them. Let me start by just uh, disclosing a few conflicts that I have. Um, I have done, I have participated in clinical trials for um, Amgen. I do direct the psoriasis and phototherapy center and my department does get revenue as a consequence of um, those treatments. And um, my ex-spouse is involved in Merck and that's relevant because I'm gonna be talking to you a little bit about some vaccine requirements and Merck is a company that does develop vaccines. So this is kind of the the, uh, the skeleton of what we're going to cover this afternoon. We're going to start out talking about issues um, that are unique to young women. Vaccination issues, screening evaluations. Then we're going to shift to talking a little bit about what about women who are thinking about getting pregnant, who are pregnant, who have just been pregnant and are going to be breastfeeding. Those are always questions that um, come up and we'll even speak a little bit about concerns for spouses of those women. Then we're going to shift gears and talk a little bit about kind of the more mature years. That's the way I like to think about it. Um, anyway, we'll talk a little bit about efficacy of, tr of therapies in women and what we know and what we don't know. Um, and then lastly, we're going to wind up talking about um, issues in women who are in the menopausal period. Um, and there are some unique issues about the way this disease may affect them and um, things that you might want to be thinking about in that population too. I'd like to keep this as informal as we can. It is a formal kind of room, um, but I can at least see a little bit. Um, so uh, if you do have a question uh, and you want to raise your hand, I'm happy to be interrupted and I'm happy to um, answer that question. But certainly at the end, um, I imagine we'll have a few minutes again to, um, to, uh, to answer questions if they pop up. So just jot them down. So we're going to start out talking about uh, issues for women who are in young adulthood who have psoriasis. I'm going to tell you about a patient who I actually just saw on Tuesday. Um, so she's an 18-year-old uh, young woman who um, had her onset of psoriasis when she was a child. Initially, it was controlled with some topical medication, topical steroids, then a vitamin D preparation was added to the mix. Subsequently, she started doing some ultraviolet light therapy, um, which was very helpful keeping her skin in remission. But she's leaving for college in a couple of months, and she's got a lot of worries on her mind uh, in particular. She's going to a school where she doesn't know that she's going to be able to plug into dermatologic care, and she wants some systemic therapy. And she doesn't know what she wants, but she just knows she wants this disease to be a non-issue. Her 
physical exam looked like this. She had widespread erythematous plaques that involved her face, her scalp, her back, her belly, her arms, and her legs. Basically about 10% BSA. Um, I guess this color kind of yellows out a little bit, but those are um, red plaques uh, that are present on her forehead, um, her legs, and um, those are just representative ones for you to kind of get into your mind. When I'm taking care of psoriasis patients, all patients actually, not just limited to young women or women at all, um, I'd like to think of it in, in um, the way I, kind of the way I divide patients up. I try to think of, does a patient have more limited disease or do they have more extensive disease? There's been a lot of debate over the years about you know, moderate, severe, exactly what number you're going to put to that, exactly. You know, I'm kind of more one of those people that says, you know, I'll know it when I see it. So limited disease is somebody with a low body surface area. Um, usually I will tell you it's kind of like under 3%. There's somebody who either requires minimal to no therapy. Topicals might come to mind either intermittently or continuously. Localized other kinds of treatments like interlesional steroids might be considered, or um, we uh, sometimes we'll use the eczema laser. But we're talking about somebody who's got a very, very focused amount, very limited amount of skin disease. Somebody who's got more extensive disease, sort of the opposite. Somebody who's got a greater amount of body surface area, who's refractory to topical therapies or local therapies, where the impact on their quality of life becomes more substantial. And of course, there's the one caveat that occasionally you have somebody who has a small amount of psoriasis, and that amount of psoriasis is so burdensome um, that it truly winds up being a much more burdensome disease than the body surface area might belie. So an example might be somebody who has involvement on their hands, and they can't shake hands with somebody, or they can't walk because it's on their feet. Or I have a couple of patients who they couldn't sit down because it was in their genital area and forget about any kind of normal sexual relationship. Um, you know, those patients obviously are the exceptions to the rule um, and need to be handled along the same lines as somebody with more of an extensive disease burden. So getting back to this patient I was seeing, um, she's somebody who, in my mind, I'd say she's got extensive disease. And the way I like to think about it is that really there are 10 choices, unless you combine things, and then of course there are multiples of 10. But you can use some variation of ultraviolet light. You can use conventional systemic medications or the biologic systemic medications. And the way I like to do it, and like when I'm teaching residents, what I like to do is say, let's put them all on the table. Let's consider them all and decide which ones I don't like. And then I get rid of what I don't like, and then I'm left with what, it, what I might choose. So for the ultraviolet kinds of things, I might be thinking about UVB phototherapy. In my hands, I'd be using narrow van light. I don't know, how many, um, in, how many of you in your practice situations have ultraviolet B phototherapy? So maybe about a third of you, it looks like. How, of those, how many of you would you say have narrow van light? Okay, so most everybody. Is anybody in here still using broadband ultraviolet light? No, really hardly very very few. And I think that really reflects really how the practice has migrated. Um, so UVB phototherapy, mostly narrowband, is, is, um, is certainly an option. And PUVA photochemotherapy is another option, which in case you're not um, using that, that's the combination of sorolin and UVA um, wavelength light. So 
UVB, I mean, the first question to ask when you're asking about any ultraviolet light is, is it feasible? Because both UVB, narrowband UVB, and PUVA have a pretty nice efficacy rate, but if you can't come, it doesn't work. And really, nothing frustrates me more than when somebody, you know, has come, you know, six times over the last six weeks and says, you know, doctor, it's just not working. And, you know, and I think to myself, well, you know, that's obvious. And I'll often say to them, you know, if you took one milligram of Motrin, you think it would work as opposed to 400. And, you know, but I think, obviously, I'm preaching to the choir, but I think, you know, the first question that always needs to be asked when you're considering light therapy is, is it feasible? So um, if the answer is yes, then of course light therapy becomes an option for, um, for a young woman. Um, in particular, UVB phototherapy probably be the one that I might favor. The problem with PUVA photochemotherapy is the risk of non-melanoma skin cancer from prolonged use. And while treating a young person doesn't necessarily commit you to a prolonged use of, of PUVA, um, certainly, the days of use, utilizing PUVA for decades, which is what was being done in the 70s and 80s before we had so many choices, um, those days really have drawn to a close because of that risk of non-melanoma skin cancer. So while I don't, wouldn't absolutely not use it in a young woman, it is something that I probably is not one of my first go-to drugs for that reason. The other thing just to know is that it's category C, and we'll talk more about that in a, in a few minutes. So now let's talk about the conventional systemics. So here we have three, and really the issue about conventional systemics are, what about the risks for young women? So let's start with acetretin. Acetretin um, you know, is approved, certainly, can be used in young women, but there's a key fact, which is that um, drinking any kind of alcohol, that includes wine, beer, mixed drinks, mouthwash, any kind of alcohol, um, can cause reesterification of acetretin back to etretinate. Etretinate was the original compound that we had uh, when these agents were first being developed. The problem with etretinate is that it's stored in the fat. And while acetretin requires um, people to stay off of it for three years um, in order to be sure that it's completely eliminated from the body, Tretinate actually remains, because it's fat soluble, remains in the body lifelong. And so um, I can tell you that I personally do not use acetretin because I don't believe most young women don't drink. Um, my attitude is everybody drinks some, um, whether they tell me they do or they don't. And certainly that doesn't imply a, a value judgment on them. It just require, it, it just, in my hands, makes me a little less enthusiastic about this medication for a young woman. The other thing is, while I'd like to think my patients like me and want to follow up with me, um, we don't know where any of us will be in three years, and um, least of all, do I know where my patients will be. And so um, it, it is really important, if you're going to use this medication in young women, that you certainly stress upon them the need for um, active birth control for three years after, um, after they take the last of it. Um, methotrexate, that's another drug that could be considered certainly in the treatment of a psoriasis patient with severe psoriasis. Um, again, here we have the issue, um, as, you, as you all probably know, methotrexate, the main risk is that it can um, of, is the risk of increased hepatic risks. Um, so it can be liver toxic, um, and it also can cause bone marrow suppression. I think one of the biggest issues here, however, 
is that that risk is increased when, with concurrent alcohol intake. And again, I don't mean to be a cynic, but my working theory is that most college kids are going to drink at least some. And so I'm not sure that would be on my, top uh, on my top two list of what I might like to give for somebody just heading off to college either. Also, it's important um, to be thinking, you know, could this be somebody who might be interested in getting pregnant? And we'll talk a little bit more about that as well in a few moments. Cyclosporin sort of falls in the same category as PUVA. So cyclosporin for a short term um, is, can be a fabulous medication, but long term, there's definitely an increased risk of renal impairment from prolonged use. So that this is another uh, modality which I've, I've kind of shifted in my utilization to using it for very short periods of time. So probably not a good long-term strategy to kind of keep this, um, this patient clear while she's away at school. So as you can tell, I'm less than enthusiastic in this situation for those conventional systemics for the reasons that we've just been talking about. Now what about the biologic systemic medications? Here the issue is potential immunosuppression. We have five drugs that are approved for psoriasis in the United States uh, as listed here on the slide. Adalimumab, Tanercept and Infliximab are TNF inhibitors, Alefacept is a T-cell inhibitor, and Ustekinumab um, as an IL-1223 um, compound. So, Obviously, three different categories of medications, and there are some different risks amongst them. And I think that's going to be discussed a little bit more, if I understand, tomorrow, um, you know, sort of the merits and, and um, plus, the pluses and minuses of each of these drugs. But suffice to say that they range, their efficacy rate, rates range um, from about 20% up to about 70%. So certainly there's difference in efficacy. But what I think about, especially in a young patient heading off to college, a young woman, um, some of them are a little more user-friendly or a little less user-friendly for someone who's you know, probably going to be out of town or um, kind of a little bit harder to be in touch with. So um, adalimumab and etanercept have a little bit more mobility. So for a person who's leaving home, that's convenient. They can take medications with them. Um, Ustekinumab has the convenience of not having to be administered that often. But they have to be willing to come in every three months, so, um, so that's something to uh, be aware of. Alephacepts, some people sort of like to get those treatments, you know, kind of in the run-up to their departure. Um, that's potentially an option to be able to treat before somebody leaves. Um, uh, and infliximab, again, has intermittent dosing, so that just has to be factored in in terms of where they're going to get it and, um, and what's going forward. But I think the biologic agents uh, remain uh, considerations for people who, um, who need that kind of, who have a severe disease burden and need that kind of ongoing care. So what do I do to screen patients in this situation? Well, here there's only uh, one way I, I differ between my male patients and my female patients. In all patients, I'll be getting a complete blood count and also screening for a comprehensive metabolic panel. When I'm dealing with the, the um, TNF inhibitors and ustekinumab, um, those will be every six months. Uh, methotrexate, since that is somewhat immunosuppressant, I will be dealing with that every, uh, and every three months. 
TB screening has become an absolute uh, essential right across the board. I practice in Philadelphia, and, and T, uh, Philadelphia is a pretty endemic area for TB, so that's something we do on everybody, and then we repeat it annually. Um, I think it can be done either with PPDs under the skin, uh, where the patient usually goes to their primary and then comes back to the primary two days later. Um, we can do it as well in our, um, in our clinic situation. Or we have people getting quantiferon gold um, blood tests. And either way is adequate. Um, in fact, quantiferon gold, in fact, it, it turns out is a little less expensive than the PPDs if you factor into the equation the risk of false positive tests with PPDs, the time coming back and forth to, for two visits instead of one, um, et cetera. So, um, so many patients find that to be a very nice, convenient way to screen for, uh, for uh, TB. Things that are more optional, that there's really not a good agreement on as how, how frequently and how regularly uh, this should be done, has to do with screening for, hep for the different types of hepatitis. I think um, it's quite clear that um, methotrexate requires screening for all. Uh, it's quite clear that eustechinumab patients should be screened for hepatitis B. Um, but whether or not that should be universally generalized or whether um, it should only be in the situation where patients have symptoms or abnormal lab tests, I think there's yet um, some disagreement about that point. Those are all ways I would do the same thing for my male and female patients. But the one way it's, um, my female patients get treated a little bit different has to do with gynecologic screening, and I'll explain to you why in just a moment. Let's talk about vaccine requirements. Now, you know, in dermatology, up until recently, we really weren't thinking about that. That was really something that, you know, kind of fell in the purview of pediatricians, general practitioners, um, you know, maybe gynecologists, although probably not even there. Um, and many of you may have previously, you know, as a result of your more general education, may even have greater understanding of this than we in the medical, you know, dermatology side of things. But one of the issues that's come to light as we start working with these medicines that are immunosuppressant is the fact that we need to be sure that patients are immunized uh, and that they're up to date in their immunizations. So at this point, I am asking patients where, where they are with their immunizations. And just to remind you, you want to be sure that they have had the MMR vaccine. That's a live vaccine. Um, so you certainly want, if they haven't had it, um, or if they haven't had their boosters, you want to be sure that they are up to date on that. Uh, varicella, same thing. It's a live vaccine. It's very important before you start these immunosuppressant therapies that um, that, that, that it be clear that they've had that vaccination. Hepatitis B, I think, is a good idea. Um, so again, that's something that, um, that's helpful if they're vaccinated. Um, HPV, we're going to talk a little bit more about that one in just a moment. Um, meningococcal vaccine uh, for young people, that's very, very important. The risk for freshmen uh, who are you know, living on campus is much higher than people living at home. And you need to be sure that, they, um, that they're up to date on that. A lot of my young patients are going traveling as a part of their college experience. So thinking about things like yellow fever, again, another live vaccine is important. And then if they're going to be on these immunosuppressive therapies, realizing that they fall in the risk group of, um, of those uh, and therefore need influenza uh, vaccination is really important. Now you can say, 
well, why is this our job? Well, the reason it's our job is because oftentimes I'm the only one they're seeing. And so it becomes our job as a result of making sure that our patients are safe. The other reason it's our job is that it's much, much harder to give these vaccines once I get these therapies going than it is to do it up front. So um, for example, if a patient you know, is currently on a medicine, say they're on etanercept, for example, and all of a sudden it comes up that they need yellow fever vaccine because they're going to take a semester in Brazil or something such as this. Um, then we have to stop the, the, the etanercept. We have to wait an appropriate period of time to make sure that their immunosuppression wanes and that their, their immune system comes back to normal. We have to immunize them, and then we have to wait again at the other side to make sure that they're over that immunization. And um, from drug to drug, that varies a little bit. And so you can see it's certainly much easier to do it up front. And so really, it's when, you, when you're seeing that, that patient in your office and you think to yourself, oh, I think this is a patient I'm going to put on an immunosuppressant agent, really the first thought you should say is, okay, um, while I'm waiting to get it approved and I'm waiting to get their labs and I'm waiting to do all the things that I otherwise have to do too, I should say to them, what's going on with you and vaccines? And if you do that, even if you just turn around and say, I need you to go to your primary and I need you to make sure you're up to date, um, that's perfect um, because this way, hopefully, they plug in before you get the ball rolling. Um, and that's one, I guess, advantage of the preauthorization requirements. It kind of delays things for a few days and gives us that chance. Um, the other reason to encourage vaccination is that immunization rates are really low. So if you look at studies, of like inflammatory bowel disease patients who are on uh, immunosuppressants, only about a quarter of them have been vaccinated. But if you offer that vaccination in your office, so a lot of GI doctors will carry that, you know, will have these vaccines, um, they'll say yes. And I've certainly found that the case in my practice. In the fall, you know, if I say to patients, you know, did you get the flu shot? They say no. Um, and if I say, well, would you like one? They kind of squirm for a moment and they say, yeah, I guess so. So um, I think, so I, just my anecdotal experience has definitely borne out what, this, um, what that paper uh, demonstrated. Certainly we have to remember that live vaccines are to be avoided. And as I said, if you need to give somebody a live vaccine, it's really critical that you tell them to let you know so that there can be a drug holiday. Um, this, you know, uh, and it, that can be annoying. Sometimes patients flare during that time. Sometimes as we restart medications, it's not as effective, but it is still quite necessary. Um, the other thing is that it's, it's not clear, even with the attenuated vac vaccines or the, the recombinant vaccines, it's not clear if the vaccination take is as high. So that, for example, there's uh, interesting studies coming out of the inflammatory bowel disease uh, populations that they've noted that the take, uh, that, that if you compare patients on immunosuppressants to those off in, who are not on immunosuppressants, that the, um, the amount of antibody response to things like pneumococcus um, is, is, is lower. Okay, I told you I'd get back to this one. This is very unique to um, our women patients, at least at this point. Uh, it might not be forever, but at least for right now it is. So that's to do with the HPV vaccine. So this is a three-dose recombinant vaccine, so it's not a live vaccine, so it can be administered concurrently with your therapy. Um, it's recommended for females who are young. Remember, this is a disease of the young, so 9 to 26. Lots of patients with psoriasis fall into this group. Um, and it's 
best if it's administered before someone becomes sexually active, but it actually can be administered even once you are sexually active. Well, you say, again, why is this my concern? Well, I think we've begun to understand that some of the immunosuppression that we are imposing on our patients pharmacologically may have consequences. So women in, who, who are HIV positive have a higher incidence of HPV and cervical dysplasia. Well, certainly we would all agree that they are quite immunosuppressed, presumably. Um, but the, the uh, OBGYN Academy basically is recommending that women who are immunosuppressed should be screened as a consequence for cervical cancer um, every year. Um, and what they find is that there's a higher incidence of abnormal PAPs, which is a sign of viral infection um, in the cervix. Oops, did I skip one? No, okay. Um, I did want to just remind you, since we were talking a little bit about vaccines, of which vaccines are the live ones. Um, the ones that really come up on a regular basis, uh, intranasal influenza vaccine, that's the nasally inhaled one, that's um, not a good choice for, um, for our patients who are immunos on immunosuppressant therapy. Um, yellow fever I already touched on, varicella and zoster vaccines, both are live. Um, Happily, some the rest are, are things that we don't often have to encounter. Um, the one exception I, I do just want to stress for young women, um, MMR, which might be administered to their children, is a live vaccine. It's not clear uh, what to do in that situation for our, our young women who might be you know, holding those children. So far, there is no recommendation from the CDC about that how, whether there should be any avoidance whatsoever. Probably if the women's own vaccine levels uh, to MMR are okay, that probably means that it's okay, but that's just something to put in the back of your mind. Okay, so we talked about um, some screening labs. We talked about some screening of what patient, young women's vaccination status might be. Um, I know that Dr. Gelfand's gonna speak with you after I finish about um, some of the metabolic syndrome, so I'm not gonna speak to that at, at all very much. But I do wanna just point out that screening for the metabolic syndrome in our young women is of critical importance. Um, kind of making sure that their lipids are appropriate, that their glucose levels are normal. Weight management, I think, is definitely something that I've started to speak to my young women about. Um, there's, there are definite studies that correlate weight gain and psoriasis severity over time in, in women patients from some of the long-term nursing trials. Um, it's a great time to intervene and talk about dietary and the need for good diets and exercise. Um, as well as providing guidance about smoking and alcohol use. And I must say, I think I get more mileage out of telling some of my women patients that smoking is gonna make their psoriasis worse and their skin wrinkle than all the internists do in the world by telling them that they may get lung cancer. So, um, but I think that's definitely something we wanna support and encourage patients in those kind of, these kind of preventative ways. Any questions so far before we shift gears a little bit? Any questions about young women and some of those issues? Yes, I see a question up there. Um, I don't know that I could hear you completely. I think you asked, maybe come to the microphone, would you mind? I'm sorry. If 
they need a vaccine previous to starting the biologic, what's your wait period? And you mentioned a holiday period if they need a vaccine while they're on it. What's your standard wait period? Good question. Okay, so my you know, obviously we said if you can vaccinate patients before you start therapy, that's best. And I usually wait two to four weeks um, before I'll, if, if, you know, if you're, vac if you're vaccinated today, um, then I'll wait. It, with a live vaccine, I'll wait four weeks. And if you're vaccinated with an attenuated vaccine or a recombinant vaccine, I'll wait two weeks. Okay, so, um, and then initiate therapy. It's a little trickier to know what to do with, if you're, if you're taking a drug holiday. Um, you know, conventional medications that you took every day, we have a much better sense of half-lives. I think it's trickier with some of these medicines that are administered less frequently. Um, but basically, what I try to do is have people be off therapy for a month, vaccinate, and then again, remain off exactly the same as what I just said uh, for, you know, for, for the first category. Um, but it's a little tricky to know. For example, adalimumab has a longer half-life than etanercept, and um, it's a little trickier to know exactly what's the optimal time off. Um, but in my practice, generally, I'll use about a month uh, off therapy. Any other questions? No? Good. Okay, so let's talk about perinatal issues. This often comes up. Um, but I wanted to start by telling you something that I think is pretty interesting um, and I think will have some potential for our patients going forward, and I think this is, this is great news. You know, until recently, I always said to patients, well, you know, getting pregnant is one way to get rid of psoriasis, that you had about a 50% chance of your skin really improving. Now, the only trouble with that is you have to want to be pregnant and you also have to want to have children. Um, but short of that, it, you know, for many women, it was really very helpful. And the numbers that we quoted were this. Half of patients, their psoriasis spontaneously got better. A quarter of patients didn't seem to make any difference. And a quarter of patients, actually, their psoriasis got worse. Um, but what this study was able, what these studies were able to show, which I think is pretty interesting, is that that spontaneous improvement seems to be linked to the HLA-CW0602 allele of HLA-C. Where that's important is that, you know, in the future, we may just be able to more routinely screen people and be able to predict for some of these uh, young women to be what will happen to them during uh, pregnancy. You know, we always used to see that it happened again and again. So, you know, many of our women patients would say to us, oh, yeah, you know, I cleared when I was pregnant, and it happened every single time. Um, and so, and this is kind of goes along with what, with what now we understand, which is that clearly there is a genetic phenotype of people who are going to um, do that. And it's certainly very nice to be able to reassure those women that their course during their pregnancy, when people are a little le less comfortable using some of the different medications, will be a little less rocky than they might fear. You know, exactly how to handle people who we know, you know, won't have that experience, um, maybe that will challenge us to um, anticipate some of their needs a little bit better as well. But what we haven't thought about until really recently is the fact that not only does um, pregnancy have an effect on psoriasis, but it's a two-way street, so that there's an impact of psoriasis on, on becoming pregnant. So we've begun to understand um, that pregnant women have more complications if they have psoriasis. They have a higher frequency of abortions. They have 
higher frequency of hypertension, which I think Dr. Gelfand's going to speak to you about the metabolic syndrome and that increased frequency in our psoriasis population. But nonetheless, they're often hypertensive women. Um, and they have a higher frequency of needing C-sections. It also goes along with the fact that they're often overweight. And being overweight has an increased risk of complications in pregnancy. So we also see an increase in multiparity of these women. We see an increase in insulin-resistant um, uh, diabetes. We see gestational hypertension and um, too much fluid. Uh, so, so this is important that we need to be, again, talking to our patients, um, making sure that they know that they need to be plugging into plugging in with their obstetrician early um, for these obvious reasons. I think let's talk a little bit about the risks associated with medications during pregnancy, just to kind of define the issue to, in case you don't remember. So there are three big categories that you have to worry about for medications in a pregnant woman. One is, isn't an abortifactant? In other words, an agent which increases the risk of abortion. The second thing is, is it a mutagen? Okay. Does it actually cause a mutational event? Okay. The third thing is, is it a teratogen? And a teratogen is an agent that can cause an increase in congenital abnormalities. So remember, an, a mutagen can kind of affect the ovary, can affect the eggs of a, of a young woman. And a teratogen just affects the fetus that's developing. Okay. And the FDA grades um, this issue in th with three categories primarily. I guess there technically is an A, but no drug fits that category since no drug is ever willing to be studied in women and found to be perfectly safe with no risk. Um, so basically, drugs are labeled with one of these three things. There are B, if animal studies have not found a risk to the fetus, but there are no studies in women, uh, or in, in humans, obviously women. Uh, C, if there's no data, no animal nor um, human studies, and X, if, um, if there's evidence of, um, of problems. And so in this category, the risk of the pregnancy outweighs um, the benefit. So if you look at the drugs we usually use in psoriasis, you can see, um, you can see the following. The biologic compounds, they're category B. Of the traditional systemics, acetretin and methotrexate are both category X. So what does that mean? Do we use those in pregnant women or women trying to get pregnant? Who says yes? Who says no? Right. Okay, we certainly don't do that in women who are uh, pregnant. And cyclosporin comes out as category C. Cyclosporin is probably pretty interesting because cyclosporin, we really have very few patients in our registries for, who have psoriasis. Most of our patients that we, that we are looking to for information are taking cyclosporin for transplant, you know, after having had a transplant. And what they found for cyclosporin is that in that population, those women have low birth weight so that their babies are small and that carries a certain risk in terms of failure to thrive, et cetera. But what's interesting to know of the very few number of patients who have psoriasis who are in those registries, and the numbers are very, very small, actually it doesn't seem like there's a low birth weight issue. And so it's very possible that we're assuming that cyclosporin causes a low birth weight when in fact really what we're, what we're seeing is really that uh, women who've had transplants really are somehow an impaired host and therefore their babies have a low birth weight. So cyclosporin um, is labeled as category C. Uh, but there's really a dearth of information in the psoriasis population. 
uh, PUVA as well, because of the, the way the sorolin is interclated in the DNA, is category C. So, um, so that also falls into category C. Whoops. So how do we digest this? Well, obviously, we talked about when somebody has limited disease that topical medications are preferred. And even sometimes in some of our patients with more extensive disease, oftentimes this is a situation where, where women really want to be absolutely sure that there's no risk. And topical therapy is preferred when it's feasible. Um, moisturizers certainly have no risk. Topical steroids, if you're going to use them, they should be limited in quantity so that there's not systemic absorption. Systemic steroids, um, category, anybody want to say category B? Who here thinks systemic steroids are category B? How about uh, category C? And how about X? Actually, systemic steroids are category C. So, um, so certainly, uh, while we, we certainly all do use topical steroids, uh, probably limiting their quantity and probably discouraging occlusion to minimize the risk of system, systemic absorption is probably best. UVB phototherapy, while not explicitly tested in the setting of, of uh, pregnancy, um, is thought to be safe. Uh, there is not thought to be any risk to the developing fetus. Um, so that's convenient when it's feasible. Uh, TNF inhibitors, we talked about they are being category B, but I will tell you that they're category B based on very limited information. And the information is limited because oftentimes we as practitioners are taking our patients off of these medicines uh, when it's time for them to get pregnant. And so in contrast to inflammatory bowel disease and rheumatoid arthritis, um, in contrast to the arthritis and the, and the bowel uh, uh, patients, uh, we have very few patients in our registries to, to make judgments based upon. But at least based on, what, on the limited data we have, they're category B. Alethacept, again, category B. If the TNF inhibitors have very limited information, alethacept has even less information. So um, certainly, this might be an agent you consider pre-pregnancy, you know, kind of in the lead up to getting pregnant, especially you know, in somebody where they're really going to, uh, they know they're going to start trying in the future. Ustekinumab, um, category B, uh, but again, very limited data. It's really based on animal models, monkey data. Um, you know, of course, the presumption is that that's helpful, um, but not really as useful as human data would be. Um, cyclosporin and systemic steroids we've already touched on. PUVA, again, we've already um, touched on as well. Medications to avoid, however, are, you know, are really methotrexate and the systemic retinoids, because those are both category X. Methotrexate is, is methotrexate covers all the categories. It's a teratogen, it's a mutagen, and it's an abortifactin. Now, I will tell you that I do make sure I tell all my young women um, that it's certainly not adequate birth control. Uh, so, you know, the fact that, you know, chances are you're going to, um, you know, that gynecologists use it as an abortifactin um, is not good enough uh, if you're going to be on methotrexate. Uh, systemic retinoids are a teratogen, as we've already mentioned, and so again, um, this is not something you want to be using in, uh, in women who are pregnant. Topical therapies are murkier. Uh, the topical retinoids are considered teratogens. 
the amount of systemic absorption is really very, very low. We don't really have data based on psoriasis patients. We have more information based on acne patients, and certainly many of them have been treated with tretinoin and those kind of acne products over the, over the decades without developing evidence for fetal abnormalities, um, but I don't think anyone can, can be certain that there isn't systemic absorption, and so therefore it's best avoided. Um, excuse me, topical vitamin D agents, anthralin, topical tacrolimus, we really suffer from a lack of information. For the conventional systemic agents, the time off therapy before contemplating um, pregnancy, so for methotrexate, it's three months. And it's three months both for your young women patients, but then often the question comes up is what about you know, males who are trying to impregnate their, their partners. And um, there we're looking for three months as well. So in both cases, we're looking for three months off therapy before you, you start trying to conceive. Acetretin for, th for females, it's three years. As I mentioned earlier, I don't use it in my young women, um, but three years is the minimum. And males, it's not necessary. Now what about women after they, now they're through their pregnancy, now they're nursing, what, what to do then? Um, what we know is that the three conventional systemics, antitenercept, are all present in breast milk. Of the three conventional medications, acetretin, cyclosporin, and methotrexate, the levels are really very low. But they're very, the, the reports looking at these are very, very small, um, and therefore it's very hard to conclude really what bearing these medications might have in the gut of a newborn baby. So best avoided, I would say. Etanercept is sort of interesting because even though it is, it is in breast milk and it does therefore cross into the, into the, the infant, the newborn baby, it, um, it does not pass through the, the intestinal lining, so it sits in the gut. So what implications that has or doesn't have, you know, I don't know. But I certainly do try to not have it be utilized in, um, in my young nursing moms. Um, we don't have information about adalimumab, alefacept, PUVA. Um, we actually don't have information about UVB phototherapy, although it's not presumed to have any um, adverse effect on uh, women if they're nursing. The only medication that actually is not present in breast milk as far as these very small, limited reviews um, look at is infliximab. Um, and so uh, I suppose that might be a consideration uh, in decisions uh, for nursing women. But in general, uh, most women I find in my, in my practice prefer to remain off of systemic therapy if they're gonna be nursing. Any questions on the issue about what to do around the time of pregnancy and um, when you're nursing? No? Okay, good. Then we're going to talk a little bit about, um, you know, the, the adult woman. I think if you look at all of the, um, these newer biologic a, uh, agents, Really, we've come to understand that psoriasis not only, is a, not only is a skin disease, 
it has, it has really full body effects. So it affects us, affects people in terms of their other medical concerns. And it also affects them in terms of their psychological concerns. And what has become very clear from all of these biologic medications as they've been studied, that as we clear people's psoriasis, we improve their quality of life. And that's true for each and every one of the biologic medications. Um, and in fact, uh, the, the strongest one probably is the study most recently done by Alan Mentor on adalimumab, where it's really actually been shown to reduce depression per se. So, not, um, so I think we see this again and again with these different um, medications. We really suffer from a lack of information about the more conventional medications, methotrexate, acetretin, and um, uh, cyclosporin, really because those kinds of studies were not done at the time of um, those medications' development. The next point I want to stress is that um, do these medications work equally well we, you know, in men and women? And I think this is something that we're just, just starting to get our arms around, and we need much more information. But what we've been able to see is that with the three TNF inhibitors, um, there seems to be equal efficacy in our male and women patients. With Alephacept and Ustekinumab, again, seems to be equally effective. But methotrexate has a little bit of a signal suggesting that it's less effective in females than in males. Well, say, is that really your clinical experience? I think the, where we get this information from, there are really very few good studies about methotrexate. It's really, it's really problematic that this medicine that was the gold standard for so many decades really is so, um, so poorly been studied. But there was a study where, um, where one of the pharmaceutical companies compared their agent, in this case it was adalimumab, to, um, to methotrexate. And one of the things, if you glean, if you really, you know, kind of crunch down in their studies, in, in their data, one of the things you can see is that uh, methotrexate in the male patients, the efficacy, the BSA, um, excuse me, the PASI 75 rate was about 50%, and in female patients was closer to 30%. So it's about 20 point difference between, um, between effectiveness in males versus females. Now, there were many problems with that trial. I'm not going to sit there and defend it and tell you that it, it's absolutely accurate, but it's just to me that we need to know a lot more because obviously we've just been seeing that if we can get people's skin to clear, it really improves their outlook and their, um, their perspective. And if there are differences between men and women, it certainly is something we would want to factor into our equation so that we allow patients to clear and you know, hopefully allow them to achieve that better um, mental perspective as, as, um, as well as feeling better about their skin. We have no information whatsoever on astretin, cyclosporin, PUVA, UVB phototherapy. So clearly we need to do a lot more investigation in this area. Okay, now I'm going to switch talk, to talk a little bit more about um, concerns in, uh, in older women. Okay, so we were just saying that, you know, as you improve psoriasis, often people's perspective, their quality of life scores go up, they start to feel better. Well, I thought this was an interesting study that was in the British Journal a couple years ago, where basically they looked at 
women who were hospitalized for psoriasis in Europe and gave them a quality of life score. And what they found is that older women who had, um, who scored poorly, when, or older women who have concurrent anxiety or depression, their quality of life scores were the lowest um, compared to either their comparator group, which were older women without uh, concurrent anxiety and depression, or compared to their male compatriots. And I think the important take home message here is that not everybody experiences the disease the same. And it suggests that as women get older, um, especially if they have concurrent depression going on, that they experience psoriasis much more, they can, their experience of their disease can be much more burdensome. Um, so that equal amounts of disease burden, so if we say 10%, 20%, equal amounts may not translate into an equal experience for, um, for all patients. Other things you need to be thinking about in the older woman. We need to be remembering that, again, vaccination issues come up. Um, older women, currently the recommendation is for, um, for women over the age of 50 to be vaccinated for, um, for shingles. Um, it's a live vaccine. Again, it's something we need to remember uh, if patients are on immunosuppressive therapy. We need to uh, remember to encourage them to get influenza vaccines each, um, each fall. Uh, and if they're on immunosuppressant therapy, and we need to remember that that oral version is one they want to avoid. The intramuscular version is fine. Um, and we need to encourage our older uh, women patients as well to uh, be getting pneumococcal vaccines. And the current recommendation is that it should be given once over age 65. The other thing which I think is kind of simmering on the horizon for women has to do with osteoporosis. Again, a topic we're not usually accustomed to thinking about. We know that the things that increase people's risk of osteoporosis are things like their family history. You know, so if your mother had it, you know, you're at, a, at more risk than, than not. Um, lack of physical activity, if you smoke, that puts you at increased risk. Anything that decreases your estrogen levels, so if that's either you know, it was a result of a, a surgery, if you, biologically, if that's just the way you are, early menopause, um, and age is really very important, so that all people are at higher risk at the older they get, so a 90-year-old is at more risk for osteoporosis than a 70-year-old. And of course, the risk, uh, the, the problem with, with being at risk for osteoporosis is that it increases the risk of fracture, and that's directly correlated with a low body mass. So petite, small women are more at risk than more robust women. Um, and this increases the risk of fractures and falling, and all that correlates with an inability to be able to be independently um, functioning. Well, that's not the only thing that can increase your risk of osteoporosis. So there are secondary risks as well. And um, systemic steroid use increases your risk of um, osteoporosis. Being vitamin D deficient increases your risk of osteoporosis, as does calcium deficiency, using uh, an excessive amount of alcohol intake. And there's some question um, that perhaps being on long-term methotrexate or cyclosporin may increase your risk of secondary osteoporosis as well. We know that, um, that in some of the other inflammatory diseases, 
it appears that older women patients are at increased risk of developing osteoporosis, and these include inflammatory bowel disease and RA. In those two populations, it's quite clear. Psoriatic arthritis is one report that suggests that there's decreased uh, bone, uh, bone mass in uh, that population. And there's also one report in the psoriasis population raising questions about, um, about this as a possibility. Really what it suggests to me is that we need a lot more information because this is something we really want to guide our patients correctly on. There's one study, however, that contradicts it, and I think that's, this is kind of an interesting idea. And, you know, of course, this, things are never just black and, or, or white. And what this study um, looked at, this was a study uh, from Norway, and what they were able to demonstrate is that their patients had a higher uh, bone mineral density than control patients. These were in, all in postmenopausal women. It was a small study, only about 35 or 40 patients, I believe. Um, and they found that their psoriasis patients had a higher body weight, and that might have contributed to the fact that they had a higher bone de mineral density, that they had more exercise, which I found kind of unusual, because we traditionally think of psoriasis patients as being more sedentary, or at least that was the traditional stereotype. Um, but in fact, their psoriasis patients had a higher physical activity level than the control women. And they also um, had had a history of UVB phototherapy exposure. So whether or not any of those three components you know, kind of compounded their, um, affected these results, of course, is not known. So whether our psoriasis patients are at a little increased risk of, being, of having osteoporosis or a little less risk because of these other issues going on, be it their comorbid conditions like obesity or their their co-concurrent um, treatments like UVB, I think is not known yet. But something we do need to keep our eye on. And in fact, I thought this was a really kind of interesting study that came out just last year. When Ryan and others, what they did is they looked, this is a study from Ireland. Again, you notice that trend, lots of northern Celtic kind of populations studied. Okay, so they, they looked at their patients and they basically were giving them UVB phototherapy and they said, you know, is there a connection between their response and their um, vitamin D levels. And basically what was very interesting about this is that they were able to show that within three weeks of starting UVB phototherapy, vitamin D levels came up. So women who were deficient became, um, became in the normal levels. But that there was no correlation between that and whether those women responded in their psoriasis. Making us think that maybe they're, they're not linked, that maybe this vitamin D may not be directly participating in people's disease activity. But it certainly makes, um, if this indeed is borne out in larger studies, and um, as we learn more about vitamin D in our patients, it may make this, um, uh, may make UVB light therapy something that we want to consider for older women as a way of um, concurrently uh, trying to protect them against um, osteoporosis. So this is sort of interesting preliminary data, so stay tuned. So, in summary, what I can say is for women, the issues that I think about when I'm thinking about my women patients, certainly pregnancy is, um, pregnancy concerns are a major, are major part of it. It's best if upcoming pregnancies can be anticipated. Sometimes therapies can be utilized, such as light therapy, potentially a lefacept, in anticipation of that pregnancy to, um, to try to allow the skin to be in control um, in the run-up before a woman becomes pregnant. 
Um, it's important to remember that we need to change our therapies for women over their, over their lifetime's journey with this disease. What's appropriate for a very young woman um, might not be appropriate for a woman who's trying to get pregnant, and then again, might not be appropriate for a woman who's uh, postmenopausal. Um, and certainly, at all times, um, we need to be sure that women are comfortable with the risks that these therapies would be exposing them to, depending on their life circumstance. I think it's, it's important, as you're going to hear about in just a few moments, it's important to be aware of their cardiovascular issues and the metabolic um, syndrome risks for women with psoriasis, and we need to be sure we're including uh, preventative care as part of what we do for these young women these women throughout their lifetimes, actually, because very commonly, we're the ones who, are, who they are most seeing and have the strongest relationship with. Um, we need to be cognizant of the fact that making people's psoriasis better does improve their quality of life. And this is, um, this is very, very important. And that um, even though what looks to you like a small amount of psoriasis, really those patients, as we saw in that study, suggesting that Sometimes equal amounts of psoriasis are, are experienced by different people different ways. And um, it's important that we be trying to allow for the best quality of life for our patients that we can. Um, we need to know more about whether our drugs work equally well in men and women. We're beginning to see maybe the biologics are. It's based on pretty limited data. Maybe the methotrexate, there might be a little signal there. We need to explore that more. And we need to be sure that we're very aware of the more general health concerns of our patients that we are immunosuppressing when we are using these medications, which can be so life-changing for patients. Um, we just need to be sure to be doing it well so that way our patients stay safe. And with that, I open the floor up to any questions you may have. Thank you for your talk. I was wondering if you could make a quick plug for NPF's PA Summit this fall. Are you involved with that again? Um, thank you. Yeah, we are running, um, just for any of you who might be interested, we're, um, we're running a, a course uh, that precedes the, um, your, your course by a day. So that it's going to be the day before um, the fall course starts. We did it last year. It was a full day of psoriasis education. And um, I think those who attended last um, during the last full course, I think really found it of great value. The, the first half of the day is spent kind of in more didactic classes, uh, lectures talking about all of the different drugs, breaking them down one by one and going through the pluses and minuses, the risks, the benefits, how to administer them, really hands-on, practical kind of things. And the afternoon, for the most part, is spent discussing tricky situations, cases that are challenging, kind of kind of figuring out how you circumvent the landmines in the care of psoriasis patients. So I hope you'll, you'll all be getting some kind of uh, email blast about it. And certainly, you can visit the NPF if you'd like to learn more about it and register. And we welcome all of you. I, I really hope you, you, I really encourage you to come. Yeah? Would you comment on your opinion about herpes zoster and pneumococcal vaccines in patients younger than the traditional recommendation as far as age, but in anticipation of starting a biologic? Um, so the question is about the, the HPV vaccine or zoster? No, the herpes zoster and pneumococcal vaccines yeah. in a younger patient who you anticipate to start a biologic. So they're younger than 50 for the herpes zoster and younger than 65 for the pneumococcal. What's your opinion on that? 
Yeah, no one knows the answer to your question. So the, um, you know, of course the the age originally it was age 60 or age 65, and then it was pushed back to 60, and now it's at age 50 for uh, for the shingles vaccine, and. You know, really it's based on the presumption that at some point our immunity that's left over from when we were exposed uh, to varicella, either by true infection or by vaccination, um, when that immunity wanes. There are many factors that contribute to that. I mean, part of it has to do with how severe your reaction was or how strong your reaction was in childhood when you were exposed, and so how quickly that waning occurs. I mean, this is just the best guess and an average. Um, and I'm not a vaccine expert, so I can't tell you all of what has gone into the CDC deciding to lower that age, except that I presume that they found that um, that, that captures more people in terms of that waning experience. I think the biggest problem with the um, shingles vaccine is that it's expensive. It costs about $250. And if you're using it, I don't think there's a risk to using it at a lower age. It's just that it's not covered by insurance. And then it becomes an expense to the patient. So I think in that situation, um, that's something you'd probably just want to talk with, with a, a patient about. Um, but certainly being sure that they truly were exposed to varicella, um, that they, you know, um, and if not, checking varicella titers to be sure that they truly have titers is, uh, is reasonable, and that would be something uh, covered. Did I answer you that question? Yeah. I just want to clarify. So if you had, say, a, a woman that's 37, and you're going to start a biologic, uh, and they said they had chickenpox when they were younger, would you... Uh, you would go ahead and just wait on a herpes zoster vaccine and do a drug holiday down the road. Same thing with the pneumococcal. Yeah. So if I had a, if I had a patient who was you know 35 or 40 who um, who had chickenpox in childhood and I was going to start a biologic, I would not administer the the uh, the zoster vaccine. Uh, that I would hold off until the person was older. Any other questions? Good. Well, I appreciate your attention. Thank you.